Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 350. Today's big Bible question, what would cause Jesus to shut a church down, plus more reasons to believe in the resurrection? Well, happy Friday to you, dear friends. Two more topics today, and we are literally only three weeks to the new year. So like 20 episodes left. Can you believe it? Today we are reading 2 Chronicles 11 and 12, Zephaniah 3, John 1, and Revelation chapter 2. Now I want to start out today with a great comment from a friend of mine who chooses to remain anonymous online. Now I have one dear friend who listens to this podcast and used to work at a uh, top secret kind of aviation company, and he has all of this various kinds of top secret clearance and stuff like that. He probably, you know, retrofitted some sort of Roswell alien tech to work on smartphones or something like that. (laughs) I kid, I kid. And he goes by his real name, as far as I know, online. But this other dear friend who wrote a great comment on our YouTube page for the podcast is so above top secret that he just uses aliases online. He says he works in some sort of IT-related field, but... Honestly, between you and me, I'm pretty sure he's like CIA, NSA, maybe Mossad. You know, now that I think about it, probably Mossad. Anyway, I can't share his name for obvious not wanting to be targeted by assassins reasons, but I do want to share his great comment on yesterday's episode in which he gives more rational reasons to believe in the resurrection. It's longer than your average comment, which is great because it gives me an excuse to talk about the resurrection and I'll take it any day I can. This is what my friend on YouTube, Where What Huh, writes. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Number one, if he did not, we are faced with the enigmatic fact of the empty tomb, which is accepted, accepted as historical fact by most scholars of antiquity, including many non-Christian skeptics. See the book, uh, Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. Number two, if Jesus did not raise from the, rise from the dead, we are faced with the extreme enigma of the birth of the church. While the disciples, except John, did not immediately take the empty tomb as evidence of resurrection, within a few days all of the remaining followers, Judas having hanged himself, believed absolutely and without any doubt that Jesus was alive and the God of heaven. This is absolutely unthinkable given that they, particularly John, had seen Jesus shredded to death on the cross die a criminal's brutal death that usually ended political and religious movements. Number three, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we have no explanation for the multiple parallel accounts of followers of Jesus having appeared to early Christians, including above 500 at one time. If one or two had made such a claim, we might have believed it to be hallucinations or some kind of ecstatic mental state, but above 500 at one time is an absolute stopper for that counterclaim. People do not share hallucinations like that. It might have been possible for people to have lied, except some of them still died, died still holding to these claims. Had they known it to be false and could have saved their lives from horrible deaths by confessing, why wouldn't they do so? In addition, Charles Chuck Colson points out that he and the other Watergate conspirators, and he's talking about from Richard Nixon's presidency. Chuck Colson worked for Richard Nixon before he got saved afterwards. Uh, Chuck Colson points out that he and other Watergate conspirators could not keep a secret for two weeks, and they were the most powerful men in Washington, D.C. 
for more than a dozen conspirators like the disciples of Jesus to keep such a secret for decades, let alone millennia, is simply absurd. Number four, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are faced with the enigmas of the conversion of James the Just and Saul of Tarsus. James, half-brother of Jesus, initially rejected the claims of Jesus, but after the resurrection and an appearance of Jesus to him, became a follower of Jesus. Saul was a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, a man of great religious heritage and an education rivaling anything available in the ancient world. He initially despised Christians participating in their murders and imprisonment, but upon seeing an appearance of Jesus, he cast away his future, his fortune, and his family in order to spend the remainder of his life as an itinerant preacher living in poverty and constant danger. Number five, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are faced with the enigma of the early creeds such as the embedded pre-Pauline creed found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. This book is considered an authentic Pauline writing by nearly all scholars of antiquity today. In it, Paul declares, quote, that which I received, a phrase which tells us that he is following the rabbinical tradition of passing down an oral teaching, and then states that Jesus died for the sins of the world, was buried, rose on the third day, as predicted in the scriptures, and was seen by many, including above 500 at one time. In the introduction to volume 3 of his story of civilization, called Caesar and Christ, State University of New York historian Dr. Will Durant states that the two most remarkable events in Western civilization are the Roman Empire and the Church, and that in a most improbable coincidence, they at the same time in history, and at one point one of them, Caesar or Rome, judged the other, Jesus Christ. If one is to fairly and without prejudice examine all of the evidence from an objective light, it's simply undeniable that Jesus rose from the dead, and that he is Lord, and that he is Lord, L-O-R-D, as in God, as in Yahweh. Amen and amen to that, where, what, huh? Um, I would say you should be a writer if I didn't know for a fact that you already were a writer. Well, thank you for sharing that comment on our YouTube channel, and I hope that was edifying for you guys listening. I think the center claim of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus, folks, and we should know as much about it as we can, and we should be always ready, as Peter says, to give an answer for the reason why we believe what we believe. And my answer is not going to be, you know, what my parents did, or I went to church, or the pastor said, or whatever. My answer is always going to be just to go on and on and on about the resurrection. Well, our focus question for the day comes out of Revelation and concerns the church at Ephesus, which seems to be great in so many ways. They've got orthodox theology, good works, hard labor for the kingdom, great endurance, and they've even suffered persecution for the name of Jesus and not given up. And yet, Jesus says something is missing. In fact, something so serious, it literally threatens their existence as a church. Well, what is that something? Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible to find out. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. 
I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, so repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. I know that your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction, unless they repent of her works. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's pretty chilling for the church at Ephesus. Jesus says to them, verse 4 and 5, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's two calls to repent in that one little short section. So many things seem right about this church at Ephesus, except the main thing, the heart, which they they have abandoned. It's crucial. And it's crucial that you and I, that we learn from the example of the church at Ephesus. 
they looked good. They were doing so many things right, and their beliefs appear to be right because they discerned who were false apostles and who weren't, and they didn't tolerate false teachers. I take from this that they had solid and biblical theology. They believed the right things and held on to the truth. Not only that, but they're hard workers. This church probably did like a lot of acts of service and a lot of community outreaches and things like that. Lots and lots of ministry, but their heart wasn't there. They had abandoned or sent away, which is what the verb means, their love. Over the years, there's been quite a bit of discussion about what kind of love Jesus means here. Did they abandon their love for God or their love for each other? Well, the the language of the passage is kind of ambiguous. It could go either way is what I mean by that. Jesus uses the word agape here, which is translated as love. Many people, as we've talked about before, understand agape to mean something like God's love or unconditional love, but that's not really how the Bible always uses the word agape. Of course, it can refer to God's love, and it can refer to unconditional love, but honestly, it can be used in a very similar way that we use the word love in English to refer to something like, or to say something like, well, I love vanilla ice cream or whatever. You see that in Luke eleven forty three, where Jesus says, Woe to you Pharisees, you agape, or love, the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Or how about 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul writes, Because Demas has deserted me since he agape, or loved, this present world and has gone on to Thessalonica. So agape can be used for loving things that aren't so good. And It can, of course, refer to loving God and God's people loving each other, too. So the vocabulary there doesn't answer the question of what kind of love we are talking about. And you know what? Just like our discussion yesterday, I think this represents an intentional ambiguity on the part of Jesus. In other words, I believe the Ephesus church had abandoned love in general love for each other and love for God. In fact, John will tell us in 1 John chapter 4, there's really no way to separate the two. If we love God, we will love each other. And the only way to love each other fully is for the love of God to be in us. There's no state where we can say, oh, I love God, but I don't love his people. That's an impossibility. Consider 1 John 4, uh, let's go 16 through 21. John says, God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. So we see here the danger that the church of Ephesus was facing. Abandoning love means abandoning God. And this put the church in grave danger of having its light or lampstand removed, which I think is sort of a metaphor of meaning it will no longer be a church. There won't be any light in it. Remember Jesus says, in, or John says, it's, it's told us this in Revelation 1, that the lampstand stands for the church. So if you move the lampstand, you remove the church. So had this church abandoned God? I don't think so. But in abandoning love, the danger was so close that Jesus' message to them was repent right away 
before the fire is completely gone and the light is completely gone. So, dear friends, let us, you and I, hear the Jesus exhortation to the Ephesus church as an exhortation to us and to our churches. Let not the fire of love go out in our love for God and our love for each other. We continue with 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 1. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mobilized the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 fit young soldiers to fight against Israel to restore the reign to Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. You are not to march up and fight against your brothers. Each of you return home, for this incident has come from me. So they listened to what the Lord said and turned back from going against Jeroboam. Rehoboam stayed in Jerusalem, and he fortified cities in Judah. He built up Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bethzur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Marashah, Ziph, Adurim, Lekish, Azekah, Zorah, Ajalon, and Hebron, which are fortified cities in Judah and in Benjamin. He strengthened their fortifications and put leaders in them with supplies of food, oil, and wine. He also put large shields and spears in each and every city to make them very strong, so Judah and Benjamin were his. The priests and Levites from all their regions throughout Israel took their stand with Rehoboam, for the Levites left their pasture lands and their possessions and went to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons refused to let them serve as priests of the Lord. Jeroboam appointed his own priests for the high places, the goat demons and the golden calves he had made. Those from every tribe of Israel who had determined in their hearts to seek the Lord their God followed the Levites to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, for three years because they walked in the ways of David and Solomon for three years. Rehoboam married Mahalath, daughter of David's son Jeremoth, and of Abahel, daughter of Jesse's son Eliab. She bore sons to him, Jeush, Shemariah, and Zaham. After her, he married Makah, daughter of Absalom. She bore Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shelemith to him. Rehoboam loved Makah, daughter of Absalom, more than all his wives and concubines. He acquired 18 wives and 60 concubines and was the father of 28 sons and 60 daughters. Rehoboam appointed Abijah, son of Makah, as chief leader among his brothers, intending to make him king. Rehoboam also showed discernment by dispersing some of his sons to all the regions of Judah and Benjamin and to all the fortified cities. He gave them plenty of provisions and sought many wives for them. Chapter 12. When Rehoboam had established his sovereignty and royal power, he abandoned the law of the Lord, he and all of Israel with him. Because they were unfaithful to the Lord in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, King Shishak of Egypt went to war against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 cavalrymen, and countless people who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sokim, and Cushites. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then the prophet Shemaiah went to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and he said to them, This is what the Lord says, You have abandoned me, therefore I have abandoned you to Shishak. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the Lord's message came to Shemaiah, They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but will grant them a little deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. However, they will become his servants so that they may recognize the difference between serving me and serving the kingdoms of other lands. 
So King Shishak of Egypt went to war against Jerusalem. He seized the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the treasuries of the royal palace. He took everything. He took the gold shields that Solomon had made. King Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them and committed them into the care of the captains of the guards who protected the entrance to the king's palace. Whenever the king entered the Lord's temple, the guards would carry the shields and take them back to the armory. When Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord's anger turned away from him and he did not destroy him completely. Besides that, conditions were good in Judah. King Rehoboam established his royal power in Jerusalem. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city of the Lord the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name. Rehoboam's mother's name was Namah the Ammonite. Rehoboam did what was evil because he did not determine in his heart to seek the Lord. The events of Rehoboam's reign from beginning to end are written in the events of the prophet Shemaiah and of the seer Ido concerning genealogies. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam throughout their reigns. Rehoboam rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. His son Abijah became king in his place. And friends, I want to read verse 14 again because it strikes me as very profound. Rehoboam did what was evil because he did not determine in his heart to seek the Lord. We continue with Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 1. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She has not obeyed, she has not accepted discipline, she has not trusted in the Lord, she has not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are wolves of the night which leave nothing for the morning, her prophets are reckless, treacherous men, her priests profane the sanctuary, they do violence to instruction. The righteous Lord is in her, he does no wrong, he applies his justice morning by morning, he does not fail at dawn, yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. I have cut off nations, their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I said, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration until the day I rise up for plunder. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. For I will then restore pure speech to the people, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my supplicants, my dispersed people, will bring an offering to me. On that day you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me, for then I will remove from you From among you, your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight you in you with singing. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. 
Yes, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time I will bring you back. Yes, at that time I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. Finally, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This is the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's right side, he has revealed him. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah? or Elijah, or the prophet. I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. 
The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom, in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, Truly I tell you, You will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. Amen. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he encourage your heart with deep and great joy in this most dark of times. May you radiate the light and love of Jesus and the gospel to all you see. Good day to you and Godspeed.